Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. I'm Maria. I will be doing our reading today. We are in the book of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Um, If you also would like to follow along in the Bible, there are some over there, and then there's also the little blue books over there that are the book of John. So if you want to grab one of those, you're welcome to. Um, It will also be behind me on the screen, I believe. So again, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I'll just pray for Steve before he speaks. Father God, thank you so much um, for this word and for this truth and for the reality of what Christmas means. Um, I pray for Steve today as he teaches to us, Lord, that you'd be with him, um, that you'd speak through him, Lord, and that you'd show us more about who you are. We love you so much. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Welcome, everyone. If I haven't met you, nice to be with you today. Thank you for coming. My name's Steve, and uh, I want to reflect for a few moments on one verse, or one line of a verse that we sang in a carol a moment ago. A thrill of hope, the weary soul rejoices. I don't know about you, but it feels like as we lead up to Christmas 2021, the world is weary. We're weary of covid We're weary of restrictions. We're weary of the constant changes. We're weary of the divisions that we see in our world. And we're weary of being weary because we've been weary for a long time now. We need a thrill of hope. Something that'll thrill us and make us not only our souls, but our world rejoice. That is the message that Christmas brings to us. Heaven's answer to a weary world is a thrill of hope to make you rejoice. Now, one of the joys of Christmas, that we all know, that often brings uh, thrills of hope to our weary souls, are presents. Nothing like getting a present, is there? Um, I, yeah, I wrapped this one for myself. Yeah. And uh, it's, um, it's a lovely present. Uh, there's nothing like seeing a kid is there, they're all expecting, what's in the present? You know, what are they going to get? And they start guessing. Any guesses? Lego. Lego, okay. Um, well, anyway, let's have a look what's in this present, and uh, we'll, see, we'll see what's in here. Uh, so, uh, what have we got here? Huh. A doctor's set. Interesting. Medical play set. So, we look in here, and okay, we've got the, 
the various things. That goes in the eye, I think, and various <laughs> things. And this goes in the ear, I think, doesn't it? Andrew at the back there. We've got some RTSI students. They can tell me where these things go. And my favourite, the stethoscope. Come on. Everyone loves, no, come on, you love a stethoscope. So Annabelle, when she was growing up, used to love putting on the stethoscope and uh, coming up to me. And, uh, and it, it was a kind of, she loved this game. You know, she'd, I'd be the, she'd be the, it was a moment of control over dad. You know, you're the patient, I'm the doctor, one nurse. And off she'd go and she'd get her thing on and she'd get going. And uh, for me, it was a mixed blessing, this game, because I got to lie down for about 15 minutes. But I got poked everywhere. Nose, ears, armpits, mouth, everything was off, you know, nothing was off limits for little Annabelle as she uh, prodded me and detected what was going on in my heart. Well, I have here an actual stethoscope, okay? The most exotic, I think, of doctor's equipment. So listen to the heart. And I want us for a moment to be doctors of our souls and our culture. Let's listen to the heart for a minute. What would you discern in the heart of our culture? We're weary, but weariness, any good doctor will tell you, that's a presenting symptom. What's really going on that means we're weary? Now, there's lots of talk about this right now from all kinds of different people. I want to suggest three other symptoms that are a bit deeper than weariness or maybe that cause our weariness. The first symptom we see in our world is restlessness. This quest for peace, this quest for contentment, this, this quest to go, I'm really, really busy and I just want some, I mean, we always talk about how busy we are, you ask, yeah, how are you doing, I'm busy. Do you know, actually, we're not busier than our ancestors. At the end of the 19th century, the average working week was 60 hours. The average working week today, unless you're a doctor, God bless them, is 33 hours. We're not busier. And we therefore, like no other generation, actually invest money and resources in rest. No other generation have the privilege to do that, but we do. We have less busy working week, we have more time to invest in rest, and we're more restless. It's a paradox of modern culture. What about psychological strain? It's, everyone's talking about it. It's the kind of buzzword of the last 200 years, mental health. Mental health is on the rise. And it's not just the underreported issue, you know, that it wasn't reported in previous generations. That doesn't account for it all. There's stress, there's anxiety. We, we can't seem to handle what life throws at us. We're much more fragile as a people at the moment. We are the burnout culture. There's the rising rates of all kinds of addictions in society, from, from shopping to gaming, from pornography to food to fitness to Instagram. The number of things we can get addicted to is increasing, and it's a way of us trying to cope with the stress that we're under. One social commentator put it like this, what greater indictment of a system could there be than an epidemic of mental illness? Restlessness is on the rise in our culture. Psychological strain is on the rise. We're listening to the heart. What are we discerning? It's not good. And thirdly, there's a culture of fear. Fear is certainly on the rise, isn't it? The opposite of fear is security. We, we don't feel very secure these days. Our culture is anxious. Everyone's talking about fear from Twitter to television. We fret about global terrorism, extreme weather, pandemics, political turmoil. In political campaigns and elections, we routinely hear fear rhetoric being used by politicians because they know it's going to drive voters because fear motivates. And the digital world we live in has not helped. 
because our world today on the, on the social media platforms and on the news platforms that we, we, have, we scroll, everyday fear that we never would have previously heard, because it's some other part of the globe, is pulled and curated onto my phone to go straight into my heart. That's the world we live in. That's why there's so much fear. And yet there's another extraordinary paradox. We have more opportunity for rest than we invest in rest, and yet we're more restless. We have more, we have more you know, counselors and, and more understanding of mental health than we've ever had, and yet there's greater psychological strength. These paradoxes of modern culture, and here's another one. Uh, we are the most safe culture that's ever lived, and yet we are more fearful. From seatbelts to airbags to the removal of lead paint and asbestos from our homes, our safety is guarded more than our shorter-lived ancestors could ever imagine. We have antibiotics to protect us from infections that in previous century was, would have been fatal. Do we rejoice? Do we feel safe? No. Protected like never before, our culture is skittish and anxious and panicky, and it makes us very very weary. It's not that the things I've mentioned aren't fearful, but the levels of fear are disproportionate to the level of threat. We live with far better health, far better security, far better opportunity than our previous ancestors who lived a lot less longer than us, and yet we fear far more than them. We were a doctor. We have the stethoscope on. We're listening to the heart of our culture. There's the presenting symptom of weariness, and then underneath, restlessness psychological strain, fear, a lack of contentment, a lack of security. All is not well. What's the problem? And what's the prescribed? What's the prescription? What is the thrill of hope that will make our weary world rejoice? Well, the gospel writer John, who was one of the first people ever to reflect on the meaning of Christmas, around 80 A.D., penned some of the most marvellous words in John chapter 1 about the meaning of Christmas. And he said, darkness represents all that's wrong, all that weariness, all that restlessness, all that stress, all that fear, that's the darkness. And the light is the thrill of hope that's heaven's answer to our weary world. And he gets down to, well, what is all this light about? And why is there so much darkness? And there's two words that I want to reflect on. The words are logos and glory. Logos, translated in your Bible as this word, is what the Greek is a Greek word, and it, it means the meaning, the logic, the rationale for life. What's life all about? The logos. What's the big meaning? What's the big story of this universe? The logos and glory. Something that ravishes, something so beautiful that it ravishes your heart and satisfies every desire, and so your cup overflows, as the psalmist would say. John is saying, our world is weary, and the world seems dark, and he's going to say, because we are very confused right now as a culture of what is the meaning of life, and we're not just confused on that, we've actually turned our back on the glory of God in Christ, the only thing that can ravish every desire of your heart and more. With this diagnosis, there is a, therefore hope that Christmas every year tells us for those that would receive him, 
you can understand your logos, you can understand your, the meaning you were made for, your glory, you can encounter that thing that satisfies your desires, and you can rest. A night's sleep might take away a bit of tiredness, but the rest of the soul is found in these two things. So let's quickly reflect on that. We're confused over our ultimate meaning. Logos, by the way, wasn't a religious word. It came from the world of the first century philosophers who debated, for the Greek philosophers who debated for many years about the Logos. You had the Stoics and the Epicureans of the first century world. The, the Stoics says there was no meaning to life. They were fatalistic. So they just said, bear up. There is no meaning, bear up, and you know what? Be good, be moral. That's what the Stoics said. The Epicureans, they actually agreed with the Stoics, and they said, no, 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 there's no meaning to life. We agree with that point. There is no meaning to life, but we're going to go down a different route, not be moral, seek pleasure. So that was the first century Greek philosopher's answers. What is the logos? Well, you're either, there is no logos, there is no meaning, so be good or be happy. And if you can find the two, whew, you've met the jackpot there. 2,000 years later, do we have better answers than those Greek philosophers? I think most people on the streets say, what's your meaning of life? Well, you know, try and be good, try and live a nice life, don't hurt anyone else, that kind of thing. And, and, you know, if you can find happiness and seek other people's happiness, then, you know, that's kind of what life's about, isn't it? Here's the thing. It's another paradox. The modern culture is full of paradoxes. Here's another paradox. For over 200 years, since the Enlightenment and the, the sort of secular revolution has taken our Western world, and we've got rid of the idea of God, and increasingly God has less place in society, uh, we're saying, listen, we want to get rid of God, but we want to keep meaning in life. And there's an objective meaning, not just one that I feel like, one that everyone should adopt. A meaning in life that's subjective for all people, not just subjective to me. But we've got rid of God, but we want to keep the objective meaning in life. But hang on a minute. How can you do that? There is no God, there is no transcendent being, there is no afterlife. We were pure fluke by a big bang, that no forethought, it was just a complete accident. And when you die, you rot, and not only your death, but the death of all civilizations and the fading of the sun. Well, you're trying to tell me life has meaning? It's all fluke to start with, we all end up in oblivion in the end? Like, what's the point of this? Now, the first century philosophers had the courage of their convictions they said, no, there is no point to life, so we're just trying to try and be moral and, and, and seek pleasure, but we're not going to try and pretend there's a meaning to life. We're going to say there isn't. Modern culture doesn't have the courage of its convictions. We get rid of God, but we say, no, there is a meaning everyone should abide by. Well, why? You can't tell me that. You know, every other religion, worldview, and culture has always said there's a meaning in life from outside of this world. A God, an afterlife, a reincarnation, a state of nirvana. It's not just Christianity. All religions, cultures, and worldviews located their, our meaning for life, not within this life, but outside of this life. We're the first ever culture in the last couple of hundred years to go, let's try and find our meaning in this life. The problem is, if you try and do that, you quickly end up going, what is the point? No one put it better than the very wealthy, rich, successful, and brilliant Russian novelist, Tolstoy, who said this, today or tomorrow, sickness and death will come to those I love or to me. Nothing will remain but stench and worms. Sooner or later, my affairs, whatever they may be, will be forgotten. I shall not exist. Then why go on making any effort? How can man fail to see this and how go on living? That is what is surprising. One can only live while one is intoxicated with life. As soon as one is sober to realize this paradox, it is impossible not to see that it is all mere fraud and stupid fraud. That is precisely what it is. There's nothing either amusing or witty about it. It is simply cruel and stupid. 
He went on to say, my question was the simplest question as lying in the soul of every man from the foolish child to the wisest elder. It was a question without an answer to which one cannot live as I had found in my experience it was this. What will come of what I'm doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Tolstoy realized if there is no God, you can't create a meaning. You're just going to rot one day. So maybe our weariness is because we're desperate as a society to find a logos that we can never seem to find. We chase and we chase and we chase in family and success and love and achievement and being moral and doing the right thing and money and pleasure, whatever route you choose to go down. But none of these logos, none of these meanings are secure enough to never fail you and big enough to fully satisfy you. It's well attested in modern culture that our experience says there is nothing in this world, no family, career, relationship, good life, amount of money or pleasurable experience that you can 100% depend on and when you get it will fully satisfy you. People die, money disappears, relationships go sour, COVID disrupts your plans, success never lasts forever, the pleasurable experience soon fades and even when you try to be moral, you cannot shake off, can you, that sense of inadequacy and you're not quite good enough it's never enough and so we chase and we chase and we're really busy we tell everyone we're busy and we're really important we're doing really important things but deep down there's a nagging what is it all about i can't rest because i don't know we're very confused about why we're here john says the logos where is he to be found not in this life he says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God through him all things were made without him nothing was made that has been made in other words your meaning for life is not held purely within this life it was there in the beginning it was the one that created all things it's your the beginningless creator God who made you in his image who made every good gift that we enjoy on earth but it was him the giver that we were supposed to find our meaning in He's big enough to fulfill us and he's secure enough to never fail us. John goes on to say, in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. So that leads us to John's second word, glory. John says we've not only confused about our meaning in life, we've actually turned our back on our greatest joy. Now glory is an old-fashioned word, isn't it? But we still use it all the time. I was watching my son's game of soccer yesterday out in Newbridge, and, you know, what a glorious goal, you know? And it was actually quite a glorious goal yesterday. What a glorious goal, what a glorious sunset, what a glorious mountain range, what a glorious day, what a glorious rendition of a song. We have the phrase. Glory is something you ascribe to a person or occasion that is so wonderful and glorious that it captures you. And for a moment, you don't analyze it, you just praise it and say, isn't it wonderful? Isn't she beautiful? Something ravishes our heart, and it causes a deep satisfaction, and it touches us so spontaneously. We say, look at that goal. Look at that. Did you see that sunset? We want to attribute praise to something that is glorious, beautiful. Well, John says the greatest joy, the greatest delight, the thing that can ravish your heart beyond anything else is in verse 14. The word became flesh, the logos, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. 
the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. That is what Christmas is about, the beginningless creator God who made it all in whose image we're made, who is our ultimate meaning in life, we're supposed to have a relationship with him, came in the person of his Son, not just to know us, but to show us glory, something so beautiful that it would capture us. But what happened? Verse 10. He was in the world. This is talking about Jesus. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The natural inclination of every human heart is to reject Jesus. He came to the world. They rejected him. He came to that which was his own, the Jewish tribe. They, they rejected him. Rejected him in the end, so they put him on a cross. That's the problem of the human heart. We've rejected the one we were made to know and love and ascribe praise to. John says the weariness problem is that we've rejected Christ. It's not that the things we look for instead of Christ are not good things. They're great things, family and career and, and achievement and the pleasure, wonderful gifts from God, but they're not the giver. They're not the real thing. Now, preparing for this sermon, I read, read, and I read it only twice. I read and reread C.S. Lewis's very famous sermon from 1942 called The Weight of Glory. And he talks like this The books or music in which we thought the beauty that was located will betray us if we trust, if we trust to them. It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of worshippers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. The good gifts of this life are not the thing we should be living for. They just lead us to it. They're a scent. He goes on to say, apparently then our lifelong nostalgia, this sense that we want something we can't have, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we've always, been, we've always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fantasy, but the truest index of our real situation. We all long for something we cannot have in this world, he's saying. At present we're on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of the morning, but they do not seem to make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, these things in life that are beautiful. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. John says, it opened when Christ came. And the word, the logos, the meaning of this universe, the beginningless creator, took on flesh and we saw his glory. What did that glory look like? John gives us two words. He says Jesus was full of grace and truth. The reason Jesus, John knew Jesus. John was arguably, from what we know of the Gospels, the closest person on earth, maybe outside the mother of Jesus, Mary, to Jesus. Jesus leaned back on, uh, John leaned back on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper and all. He was close. He was a friend. And he said, the reason I found this guy so glorious would he combine things that no one else I'd ever met combined, grace and truth perfectly. 
Jesus, there was tenderness without weakness in Christ. There was strength without any heavy-handedness. There was humility without any timidity. There was passion without prejudice. There was firm, unbending will and conviction, and yet utter approachability. There was power without insensitivity. There was never a jarring note or a false step. When John saw his friend Jesus, he saw perfection, he saw glory, he saw beauty, full of grace and truth. And all the glimpses of glory, of beauty, of wonder, as C.S. Lewis says, something that captures you and ravishes you, they never last. And they're not supposed to. They're supposed to lead you to him. But what is the opportunity then, or the offer? John says here, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The door which we've been knocking our whole lives was opened. And we can be born again and become children of God through receiving Jesus and believing in his name. And you might have a story like Karen's where your earthly father was absent and left a void in your life. And Jesus said, well, John says, in Christ, you can be born of God and have the heavenly father, the beginningless creator, the logos, not just as some abstract idea, but through Christ, a personal relationship and where you failed him and when you messed up and when you know you couldn't be good enough and when you did seek pleasure in ways that were selfish and all the rest that we've all done the logos not only came as a person he died on a cross to forgive us of our sins so what is your response to jesus this christmas now for for those of you here today that are followers of christ i want to give you three thoughts three thoughts the first one is examine your heart really We can often say, I believe in his name. Jesus is my logos. He's my meaning. He's my glory. And we go about our weeks and we find other things really capture us. Just examine your heart this Christmas and be honest. What really is your meaning and your great joy? Secondly, actively enjoy and worship him this Christmas. Give him glory. Describe his glory. Read about his glory. Sing about his glory. In any way you can, be raptured again by the fact that God became a man and he was full of grace and truth. And thirdly, every time you find something in this world that really is gorgeous and beautiful, that goal, that sunset, that hug, that career, that relationship, that bit of pleasure, whatever it is that you think, that is, I, I just want it to last, I just want it. Thank the giver, but always, lead, always let the gift lead you back to the giver. Another place, Lewis says, it's a bit like a ray of light coming from the sun. And every ray of light is like a gift from our Heavenly Father, a perfect gift. But he says, don't focus on the ray of light. Don't focus on the career or the money or the family or or whatever things in this. Enjoy them. But don't focus on them. He says, go back up the ray of light and see the sun and give glory to the giver. To those of you here who are not a follower of Jesus or are not sure if you're a follower of Jesus or are not quite sure what that means, thanks for coming. Thanks. For, we just love having guests. We love having you here. We hope you feel welcome. We also hope your mind has been stimulated and your heart has been lifted up. And we really pray that you've had a thrill of hope and that your weary soul, if it was weary, has been, you've been able to rejoice today. But I leave you with a simple invitation. If you don't know Christ or are not sure, read John's Gospel this Christmas. There's about 50 copies on the, on the exit there. Read about the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. See if you find glory. 
full of grace and truth. See if you find something in this about your ultimate meaning and that great joy that Karen talks about, that I know, that many others know. There's an opportunity, it says, to those who received him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So let me pray, and we're going to stand, and we're going to sing. I'll invite the band back, our final carol. Uh, we've got two more carols, our penultimate carol. Will you stand with me, and I'm going to pray. Let's take a moment just to be still and quiet and reflect on those two big ideas of logos, the meaning of life and glory, that great joy that can satisfy your soul. And just ask God that he might bring that deep rest of the soul that only he can bring. It was St. Augustine that said, our souls remain restless until they find rest in you. So Father, we thank you for Christmas. Every year we have an opportunity to reflect on what it's all about, on the person of, of Jesus, the only begotten Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And help us as everyone in this room, whatever our backgrounds and our experience and our understanding of you today, that we might encounter you more as our logos, our ultimate meaning in life, and our glory, that great joy that can satisfy our souls. And this Christmas, as has already been prayed by Ella May, may we not forget that. May we keep you at the center for every gift that we enjoy this Christmas, where we remember you, the ultimate giver in life. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.